1: Welcome to season two of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody, And I'm Brian Krim.
3: So far this season, we've covered violent political revolutions that toppled old regimes and erected new ones sometimes with radically different ideological underpinnings. We devoted three episodes to the American Revolution, and our two episodes on journalists caught in revolutionary situations included films about revolutions in Central America and Asia. Today, though, we want to highlight social revolutionaries who actually effectuate change, or in some cases prevent change, in their own political system.
1: We could go in a lot of different directions with this. We could draw on labor organizers and civil rights advocates, of course. But this episode concerns how Hollywood represents the evolution of the women's rights movement in the 20th century. Specifically, we're interested in the suffrage movements in Britain and the United States, but also because that basic right to vote did not alter the myriad ways in which Women were marginalized and disempowered socially, politically, economically. The long overdue follow-up to suffrage, we wanted to include coverage of so-called second wave feminism, which spans the early 1960s through the 1980s.
3: Yeah, and one thing we noticed is that there are surprisingly few comprehensive treatments of both topics in film and television, at least before the 21st century. Uh, We think we've chosen three quality productions that take suffrage and the broader feminist movement seriously while also doing what we are really interested in highlighting in Lies Agreed Upon, giving some insight into the political and cultural context of the periods in which our two films and one miniseries were produced.
1: Going chronologically, our first film is Iron-Jawed Angels from 2004, an HBO film focused on Alice Paul and the American suffrage movement. Next is the British production Suffragette from 2015, which highlights the experiences of working-class followers of Emmeline Pankhurst in Britain shortly before World War One. And then finally, we have the nine-episode miniseries Mrs. America, which was first shown on FX last year in 2020. Mrs. America covers the movement to pass the Equal Rights Amendment by such second-wave luminaries as Betty Friedan, Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm, and Gloria Steinem. But, unexpectedly, conservative women organized by Phyllis Schlafly mounted a successful campaign to stop its passage. Mrs. America really captures the complexity and divisions within both camps Something only possible with nine hours at your disposal instead of 120 minutes.
3: So let's get to our our lives agreed upon. The first one in this episode is that America has always been at the forefront of social and sexual progress. The reality was that suffragists in the United States learned from and borrowed tactics from the British suffragettes. The second lie is a classic tactic of power that any division or variation within a social justice movement invalidates the cause. There's always a temptation for Hollywood to whitewash internal struggles and disagreements in order to assert the virtue and deservedness of the participants. And the third lie is tied to the second. By focusing on the women's suffrage struggle, textbooks and popular culture could claim that victory had already been achieved You know, by the early 20th century. Uh, the reality... That equality for women is still unrealized often goes unacknowledged and unaddressed.
1: So, as always, let's recap the plots of our productions. Iron Jawed Angels was directed by German filmmaker Katja von Garnier, who had a rather slim filmography before this feature, and much of her work since is meant mainly for the European market. Four screenwriters produced this script, which actually makes a lot of sense because at times the film can't really decide what it wants to be. The cast combines some good young talent from the early 2000s with an icon like Angelica Houston, who appears briefly as Carrie Chapman Catt, the president of the National Women's Suffrage Movement. The great Lois Smith is another elder stateswoman in the movement, Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, and Julia Ormond as the tragically underused labor lawyer, Inez Milholland. We also have a glimpse of the great Margot Martindale as Harriet Eaton Stanton, daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Luckily, she is much more prominent in Mrs. America as Bella Abzug.
3: Yes, and make no mistake, this is a young person's film about the younger and therefore more radical women behind the final push for suffrage in the 19 teens, specifically Alice Paul, played by Hilary Swank, and Lucy Burns, played by Frances O'Connor. Molly Parker plays a fictional wife of a fictional senator, and Vera Farmiga plays the Polish American suffrage and labor organizer, Ruza Winkowska. Uh, Lee and I. Uh, both agree that she's wasted here. And I guess we should mention McDreamy, a.k.a. Patrick Dempsey, who plays a Washington Post cartoonist and ostensibly a love interest for Alice Paul. Uh, He is, unsurprisingly, not a real person and conjured up here to sexualize Alice Paul and capitalize on his Grey's Anatomy fame.
1: The film begins in 1913 when Alice Paul and Lucy Burns return from England, having participated in the more radical suffragette movement organized by Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters Sylvia and Christabel. The two lobby the National American Women's Suffrage Association to go directly to Congress and to recently elected Woodrow Wilson and to lobby for suffrage. This sets up a clear generational divide that plays out in the rest of the film. For now, in that early period, Paul and Burns organized the women's suffrage procession at Wilson's inauguration, which leads to some violence and involves also forcing African-American women to march behind white women in order to appease the Southern delegations.
3: And frustrated over money issues and tactics, Paul and Burns break off and form the National Women's Party. Now, they really get into trouble by picketing outside the White House in the famous silent sentinels action, provoking the police and federal government to respond with force, especially after World War I begins. Uh, The war gives the government a license to act with force. The most harrowing scenes in the film take place in the Occoquan workhouse, where the arrested women are subjected to forced feeding after deciding on a hunger strike, not unlike their British counterparts.
1: It's not surprising the women who undertake this extreme form of protest are accused of being mentally ill. And in this clip, we have Alice Paul explaining precisely why she is doing this. And, at least in this clip, she actually wins over the doctor assigned to evaluate her.
2: I'm Dr. White, Alice. The district commissioner asked me to speak with you. Do you know where you are?
4: District prison hospital. The mental ward.
2: You refuse to eat. Can you tell me why?
4: The hunger strike was a tradition in old Ireland. You starve yourself on someone's doorstep until restitution is made. And justice is done.
2: Doesn't sound like a very effective method
4: stinking corpse on your doorstep? What will the neighbors say?
2: So you stand on the president's doorstep. He's treated you very badly, hasn't he?
4: It's the law that treats women badly.
2: But you picket President Wilson. He's the one who put you here.
4: We picket the office of the presidency. It has nothing to do with Mr. Wilson and everything to do with the position he holds.
2: But... He's responsible for your treatment here.
4: I believe I was sent here by a district commissioner.
2: You call yourself a suffragist? Yes. Tell me about your cause. Just talk freely. Explain yourself. Do you understand the question?
4: You asked me to explain myself. I just wonder what needs to be explained. We should be very clear. Look into your own heart. I swear to you, mine's no different. You want a place in the trades and professions where you can earn your bread. So do I. You want some means of self-expression. Some way of satisfying your own personal ambitions. a voice in the government under which you live, so do I. What is there to explain?
2: She shows no signs of persecution mania or delusion. I concur with Dr. Hickling, there is no medical basis for a diagnosis.
3: And so when word leaks out about this brutal treatment, the pressure on Wilson grows and he uses the occasion of the war's conclusion to support the 19th Amendment, which passes a few years after his speech, showing a long scroll of nations that followed suit and granted women suffrage, and some still yet to do so.
1: Suffragette takes us across the pond, and
3: it shows because this is a
1: thoroughly British production. It's directed by Sarah Gavron, who is very intentional in her career about producing films about women, especially given the scarcity of female directors in the UK or anywhere else for that matter, it's really quite noticeable. The script is written by Abby Morgan, who has some impressive credits to her name as well, like The Iron Lady, the biopic about Margaret Thatcher, Shame, The Hour, a great drama about a news show in 1950s UK that I would totally recommend to people, and Brick Lane, also directed by Gavron.
3: The cast is impressive and replete with some of your favorite Brits, and Meryl Streep, just for kicks, as Emmeline Pankhurst. Uh, this is a film about working-class women primarily, so the big historical figures are not as prominent as in Iron-Jawed Angels. We have Carrie Mulligan as Maud Watts, the laundress solely drawn into the suffragette movement, and she's our chief protagonist. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter is Ellen, a fictional character representing real figures in the movement. Natalie Press as Emily Davison, the suffragette killed at the 1913 Derby race, and another recognizable British actress, Romola Garai, as Alice Houghton, the wife of an MP who enlists Maud into the cause. Brendan Gleeson deserves a mention as the special branch detective out to take down Pankhurst and her followers.
1: Yes, did you notice here, Brian, that there's the reverse of what we've uh, commented on before about how we've always got British actors playing the uh, founding fathers of the United States. Here, we've got Meryl Streep playing Emmeline Panker. So I guess this is a
3: uh, turnaround is fair play. (laughs) Yeah. And she's a, she's a world citizen when it comes to acting. So, you know.
1: And of course she also played uh, um, uh, Maggie Thatcher in, uh, uh, in the Iron Lady. So you see, so they're getting, getting back at, uh, at Hollywood. So, the film begins by really inserting us into the misery of working-class women's lives, specifically the laundresses who die young, are paid nothing, and suffer nonstop sexual harassment, if not assault, at the hands of male bosses. Maud is 24 and already a mother and wife, with no political inclination until she ri- witnesses a suffragette action while she's making a delivery. Frustrated by her working conditions, Maud agrees eventually to testify before David Lloyd George's parliamentary committee on the suffrage issue. And it's worth playing some of her testimony because you begin to see Maud's growing commitment to change. Your mother worked at the Laundry?
5: From when she was 14. She'd strap me on her back or under the copper vats if I'd sleep. All the women did it were babies then.
2: Your employer allowed that?
5: he would have you back as soon as you could. He? Mr. Taylor.
2: And uh, does your mother still work at the laundry?
5: She died when I was four. I see. Fat tipped. scolded her.
2: What of your father? Don't know him. And you've worked for Mr. Taylor?
5: Part-time from when I was seven. Full-time from when I was 12. Don't need much schooling to launder shirts. I was good at collars, steaming the fine lacing. Got the hands for it. I was made head washer at 17. forewoman woman at 20. 24 now, so...
2: You're young for such a position.
5: Lord, you work a short life if you're a woman.
2: And why is that?
5: You get your aches new your chest cough, crushed fingers, leg ulcers, burns, headaches from the gas. We had one girl last year poisoned, got work again, ruined her lungs.
2: And your pay?
5: We get 13 shillings a week, sir. For a man, it's 19. We work a third more the airs. They're outside my stays on delivery, so at least they're in the fresh air. What would the vote
2: mean to you, Mrs. Watts?
5: I never thought we'd get the vote, so I've never thought about what it would mean.
2: <laughs> so why are you here?
5: thought that we might, that this life, that there's another way of living this life.
3: And I think what you get from that clip is how linked economic exploitation is to the issue of suffrage. Now, of course, the hearings result in nothing, as women's suffrage is tabled by Parliament indefinitely. That, that's the, the scene that comes right after this. Um, so Maud's involvement comes at a cost. Her employer turns on her. Her husband becomes cruel and vindictive, even taking her son away from her before ultimately relinquishing custody altogether. Um, and Maud is powerless to do anything about it, which is the point of her growing radicalization. You know, Maud throws herself into the movement, which is based on direct action, vandalism, disruption, et cetera. Uh, Brendan Gleason hunts Maud down and tries to turn her, but she refuses. The suffragettes are subjected to brutal treatment in prison, including forced feeding.
1: Yes, let's listen to Gleason interrogating Maud and her forceful condemnation of everything he represents. You're right to point out this uh, common focus on the force feeding, which I have to say I think is intended to be a form of violation. So we're supposed to um, think of it and feel about it as in essence a sort of uh, political rape. but it's interesting to also note how in both cases, they use it to set up a scene where the woman gets to articulate why she is willing to put herself through this as a man is is interrogating her. So it's interesting to compare Gleason and Mulligan here with the scene from Iron-Jawed Angels. You women cleaned yourselves up well. Couldn't find a scrap of dynamite on any of you.
5: And why am I?
4: Well, you'll be charged for legal meetings if for nothing else. You know, there was a housekeeper on her way back when the bomb went off. She forgot her gloves. If she was two minutes later... What would that have done for your cause? Violence doesn't discern. It takes the innocent and the guilty.
3: What gives you the right to put that woman's life at risk?
5: What gave you the right to stand in the middle of a riot and watch women beaten and do nothing?
3: You're an hypocrite. I uphold
5: the law. The law means nothing to me. I've had no say in making the law. That's an excuse. It's all we have. We break windows. We burn things. Because war's the only language men listen to. Because you've beaten us and betrayed us and there's nothing else left.
2: And there's nothing left but to stop you.
5: What are you going to do? Lock us all up? We're in every home. We're half the human race. You can't stop us all.
6: You might lose your life before this is over.
3: We will win. So yes, unable to to turn her, as you can tell from that clip, uh, the film concludes with the fateful events at Derby Day when Emily Davison is... Killed either accidentally or by suicide, and we aren't sure. Now, Her funeral is an international event and brings greater attention to the issue of suffrage, which, as the ending scroll informs us, was finally granted to women over 30, at least, in 1918. Women gained rights over their own children in 1925, which is dramatized by the problem Maud had with her husband, and equal voting rights to men uh, in 1928.
1: Yes, it's interesting that even today, we really don't know whether Emily Davison intended to commit suicide because she had a return train ticket in her pocket. That's the little uh, sort of tidbit that is always very interesting and makes people think that perhaps she was wanting to protest and step out onto the track, but really didn't understand that the horses would be moving so fast that there would be no way that they could avoid her. Now, Mrs. America jumps us um, many, many decades uh, into the future from the suffrage struggle. The FX series released in 2020 was created and co-written by Davi Waller, a Canadian screenwriter who won several awards for her work on Mad Men. I like looking over the producer list and seeing almost all women at the helm of this production. And that also goes for many of the directors who worked on each of the nine episodes, and the cast, of course, is uniformly excellent, as the actors totally embody their real-life characters, without resorting to sort of doing impressions.
3: Yeah, definitely. And and this starts with Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly. Now, someone I reviled, but uh, Blanchett humanizes her. On the other side, Rose Byrne is Gloria Steinem. Uzo. Aduba is congressperson and first female presidential candidate, Shirley Chisholm. We have Margot Martindale again, our favorite, is second wave feminist pioneer, Bella Abzug. Tracy Ullman is perfectly cast as Betty Friedan. Elizabeth Banks is a Republican feminist, Jill Ruckelhaus. And Sarah Polson plays a fictional composite character named Alice McRae, a close friend of Schlafly who becomes disillusioned with their Eagle Forum movement. And because we love John Slattery on this podcast, he is a very good Fred Schlafly, but not always supportive husband of Phyllis.
1: We can hardly break down each episode and do it justice, but the premise of Mrs. America is a detailed look at the fight to pass the ERA or, in the case of Phyllis Schlafly's grassroots movement, stop ERA between 1972 and 1980. The series begins when the women's movement is at the height of its political power, as older activists like Friedan and Abzug contend with younger, media-savvy activists like Gloria Steinem. And then, by the time we get to the last episode, it is concerned with how each side adjusts to Ronald Reagan's election and the new era of conservative power in the United States.
3: And while the second wave feminists flex their muscle and lobby Democrats and Republicans alike to pass the ERA, seeing it as a fait accompli, we get a fascinating look into the life and career of Phyllis Schlafly. I had no idea she was basically Henry Kissinger, a Harvard-educated expert on nuclear warfare and national security but her gender prevented anyone taking her seriously, which we see several times in the series. Schlafly had political aspirations as well, so when her friend Alice suggests they organize against the ERA because it supposedly threatens the homemaker and counters family values, Schlafly runs with the issue in part to satisfy her own ambitions.
1: Yes, I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of this show is to see how the misogyny of the era really kind of forces Schlafly to mutate her own interests and and ambitions into a particular pathway that matches the um, sort of gender norms around her. Um, here's the first time that Schlafly rolls out her new platform in a speech to other conservative women. And it, it's great because you can tell that she'd rather be talking about what the meeting was originally supposed to be focused on, anti-missile shields.
7: Now I have uh, no doubt that in the uh, car Right uh, over today that you warned your daughters that I am Chairman of National Defense for the Daughters of the American Revolution, and as such, to uh, prepare themselves for a lecture on the uh, need for an anti-missile defense system <laughs> or the end of U.S. nuclear superiority. So it may come as a surprise uh, to you that uh, today I am not going to talk about the Soviet military threat, but rather... Another threat. A threat to the traditional American family. A threat that is just as dangerous and even more insidious. The threat of the women's liberation movement. Let me be clear. I am not against uh, women succeeding. I am not against women working outside the home, that's their choice. But what I am against is a small elitist group of Northeastern establishment liberals putting down homemakers. (laughs) Now, the Libbers love to say, that they're dedicated to choice. But if you dare to choose the path of full-time mother, well, there must be something wrong with you. I mean, if you don't feel enslaved, well, you're just dumb and unenlightened. In fact, you're not even a person. Betty Friedan, mother of the movement, wrote in The Feminine Mystique that marriage is, and I quote, a comfortable concentration camp. But it is not enough that they're demeaning us in the press. Oh, no. Now they want to use our miraculous constitution to create a sex-neutral society through this so-called equal rights amendment. Which will mean that that baby girl will be drafted and the men will be at home nursing the babies. I mean, can you imagine if Buck was left in charge of your children? Oh, God help us. (laughs) You
3: know, you can really tell Schlafly is a a gifted orator, writer, and would have been a formidable politician. So each episode of Mrs. America covers a crucial moment in the ERA fight in the 70s, and and always begins with the count of the number of states that ratified the amendment. Now, the real stories are the fascinating internal dynamics within the feminist movement, primarily, but also in Schlafly's Eagle Forum, which housed everyone from disaffected housewives to raging racist KKK members and John Burt Society devotees. And Schlafly was willing to embrace them all, uh, while others, like Alice, played by Sarah Polson, were horrified. But of course, the feminist movement had
1: its own divisions and not just generational. Uh, Were African-American women supported, maybe a little better than what we saw in Iron-Jawed Angels, but we see this as a movement led still by privileged white women. And of course, Betty Friedan famously warned against the, quote, lavender menace posed by lesbians in the National Organization uh, of Women. While she came around later, Mrs. America delves into this divide as well. And then there are personality clashes. Was Bella Abzug the best face of the movement, given her cantankerous nature? And was Steinem too young, famous, and beautiful to be taken seriously? Elizabeth Banks' character shows that many moderate GOP women on the other side wanted to have a say as well.
3: Yeah, and one great episode revolving around Shirley Chisholm takes on the significance of her presidential run, which, while important symbolically, was barely supported by people like Abzug, who wanted a safe, reliable George McGovern to push the ERA over the finish line. Now, Chisholm refused to back down and gives this great speech at the DNC in 1972.
6: Shirley Chisholm tells it like it is. like it really is. (laughs) There are women within range of my voice right now that support McGovern there are women that support Humphrey and Wallace, and this is your right. But if you're talking about women becoming a political force to be reckoned with, you have to decide whether or not you're going to go with the candidate who cares about women's rights and will go with you all the way down the line or whether you'll support one of the other candidates, because it has been the traditional thing to do. In this country, everybody is supposed to be able to run for president, but that has never really been true. Somebody had to do it first. So I did it. I did it because I was the only one who had Audacity to shake this system up.
1: And of course, what's worse is that we know that in the end, McGovern actually betrays all of his promises to the movement to secure his nomination. And and we know that the ERA does not pass, and Schlafly certainly had a lot to do with it. But even her efforts were not rewarded in the end. The series finishes with Schlafly expecting a phone call from President-elect Ronald Reagan, inviting her into the cabinet as UN ambassador, a thank you for her powerful donor list. Instead, when he calls, Reagan tells her that because he has a quote-unquote woman problem, thanks to Schlafly's Stop ERA movement, he fills that UN ambassador slot with Gene Kirkpatrick, another national security expert who was actually pro-ERA.
3: So, what contemporary events influenced our three productions? Let's start with 2004 in Iron-Jawed Angels. Although the film seems like a straightforward biopic about Alice Paul and a younger generation of suffrage activists pressuring a president and Congress to act, the weight of Iraq and the growing opposition to the Bush administration's handling of both the war and the increasingly oppressive domestic political environment are all over this film.
1: Yes, the Sentinel action was deemed a real provocation once the U.S. entered World War I because all of a sudden... Woodrow Wilson was a wartime president. The Espionage Act of 1917 gave the government all sorts of power to arrest and imprison anyone considered disrupting the war effort, showing disloyalty or, quote, inciting insubordination. What was once lawful political protest was criminalized, and Alice Paul and the other Sentinels found themselves in the Okaquan workhouse
3: as a result. The Patriot Act of October 2001 was another expansive piece of legislation erecting a permanent surveillance state and increased federal power to target domestic quote-unquote enemies and criminalize some speech. But beyond this, especially after Iraq, any sort of protest was deemed unpatriotic by both the Bush administration and a cowed press that still felt torn between holding politicians accountable or waving the flag, sometimes literally on screen 24-7.
1: But there is one episode that comes to mind reminding us of Iron Jawed Angels. Although the film came out right before this controversy heated up and captivated the nation, it is a distillation of these tensions between the supposed rights and freedoms that the United States was attempting to uh, impose elsewhere in the world and enjoyed at home. It is the dignified, albeit relentless, anti-war protest of Cindy Sheehan after the death of her son, Army Specialist Casey Sheehan. Sheehan camped out in front of George Bush's Texas ranch for a good bit of the summer of 2005 drawing the ire of Fox News and others. But she did not relent, continuing her protest over years, including during the
3: Obama years through until Trump. And it's interesting because you can find pictures of Sheehan outside the iron gates of the White House, occupying the same space as the Sentinels. In the film, the suffrage activists seek an audience with Wilson, but they were turned away despite making themselves omnipresent. Sheehan did the same with Bush. Let's listen to an interview with Cindy Sheehan on Keith Olbermann's old show, from 2005.
2: As I mentioned earlier, as is well known here, you spoke uh, with Mr. Bush last year, and, and your comments to your local newspaper in California about that meeting have made the rounds anew on the Internet this week, how you had said that you had felt he was sincere about wanting freedom for the Iraqis, that he had felt, obviously, some pain for your loss. Two questions about those quotes, first being, your critics say they suggest that you have changed your stance on the war on Mr. Bush in the interim. Is that true or is it false?
0: No, it's false. If they had read the whole article or talked about the whole article, they would have, it would have shown that I was already having serious misgivings about the mission that keeps on changing all the time. And the other day, I wonder if they blogged about this, my hometown newspaper said Cindy Sheehan has not changed her position, it's just become clarified and it's become more focused and her mission has, um, has become more um, important to her
2: second question about the meeting in june of last year what could you say to president bush now that you could not have said to him then or why didn't you say then what you want to say now
0: Good question um, june of two thousand and four is a lot different than august of two thousand and five for one thing in june of two thousand and four i was had buried my son nine weeks before the meeting mm. i was a woman in a deep state of shock in a deep state of grief and you know what i am still in a deep state of grief and thanks to George Bush, I will be in a deep state of grief, grief for the rest of my life. But I'm not in shock anymore. The duel for weapons of mass destruction port, report came out. The 9/11 Commission report came out. The Downing Street memos came out. The Senate Intelligence Committee report came out. These have all come out since my son was killed. They show categorically that my son was his murder was premeditated. That there was no reason to invade Iraq, and. Um, That's what I want the answers to today in August of 2005. The
1: public pressure on her to be quiet and support the war was great, but she used her influence well. Bush was clearly uncomfortable for most of that year because he didn't know how to handle the peaceful but disruptive protest, and Wilson felt the same. It's also interesting to note that the Silent Sentinel's outside the White House during World War I, were not matched by most of the British suffragettes. They actually felt such pressure because, of course, the war was so much closer to them and Britain was engaged in the war right from the beginning, as opposed to the Americans who like to show up in the la- in the final year, uh, that because of, of that, the suffragettes in Britain felt so much pressure that they actually publicly stated that there would be a cessation of their actions uh, during the war, which caused a split within the movement. But um, but that was the difference between the American
3: and the the British um, approach to this. And let's turn to the the British production of Suffragette, which was announced in 2011 and was released in 2015. So, interestingly, it is the first feature film to be shot in the Houses of Parliament, which kind of surprises me. I thought, you know, it'd be welcome to that sort of thing. A film like this, about a century removed from the 1913 Suffragette Derby, really the climax of the film, is supposed to invite reflection on how far we've come and often how much further do we have to go.
1: We see a lot of white women in our three productions. It makes sense for the suffrage films, especially in the UK. Iron-jawed angels felt obligated to invent a scene with Ida B. Wells, a founder of the NAACP and suffrage activists, demanding representation at the 1912 inaugural march, even if it made the Southern white women uncomfortable. But really, that was the last you heard from people of color in either film. As our lies agreed upon note, we often focus on suffrage and forget the century of work to achieve equal rights after that. Suffrage is really a white women's battle, according to our mediated universe in these films. But part of the ongoing struggle for equal rights is the value of all women's active participation and the culpability of white women in perpetuating racist institutions in the name of challenging misogynist ones.
3: Yeah, and Mrs. America does show this side of the story with Shirley Chisholm, who had no patience for sacrificing her historic candidacy to placate the largely white leadership of the women's movement. Now, it's heartbreaking to watch the thwarted ambition of Chisholm really effectively expressed by Aduba, who won an Emmy for her work. And here she is in this clip talking to her husband about this very issue. The
6: caucus wants me to drop out, release my delegates to McGovern. Which one? Take your peck They both have been talking to high heaven ever since way back. A female president by 76, a black president. But when push comes to shove, it's like Pop's always said, one, one hand, hand won't clap won't. and they can't see it. Bella thinks I'm ego-tripping. Gloria is just sitting on the fence. Why? Why am I the only one at this convention who thinks a black woman being president is worth the run?
2: What did you do when the older kids on the block ignored you?
6: I punched them. You punched them.
1: And hearing that frustration, it's not hard to understand why other black women and lesbians broke away from the Fridans, Abzug's and Steinem's to create parallel organizations that valued their voices and prioritized their issues. And, you know, what I like about Mrs. America is that it does not shy away from highlighting Uh, These internal divisions, disputes, and sometimes just outright failures to do the right thing. These women were the product of their time and their class and their uh, worldview, just like anybody else's. And no movement is pure and unified. So why represent it that way for the screen?
3: Yeah, and you can tell, Mrs. America is very recent, you know, 2019, 2020. Uh, And naturally, it is colored by the Trump years, Me Too, and the continued discussions around intersectionality. Now, this is simply the idea that some people are disadvantaged by multiple sources of oppression, race, gender, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, etc. So addressing one at the expense of others is incomplete. We see this throughout the series on both sides of the argument. Black women in the movement feel their white counterparts don't care or understand their experience. Lesbians were excluded openly by Betty Friedan, at least early on in the movement. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly has all the ambitions of her sisters on the other side of the hill and yet endures some of the same sexism, but actively works to perpetuate it because she sees it as the only avenue to power but power as defined and circumscribed by men.
1: Yes, and it's really interesting to hear Kate Blanchette, who was a producer for the series, comment here about just assuming that the ERA was in the Constitution. And she can be forgiven for thinking this as an Australian. Uh, this clip from ET Canada features first creator Davil Waller, then Blanchette and then producer Stacy Shear talking about this why was this a
2: story that all of you felt needed to be told i i think we're living in a time where I thought we were living in a post-feminist world where women were equal to men. And it became apparent, especially you know as you move up professionally, that that isn't the case. Yeah. And to really understand where you are, sometimes you have to go back in time and look at history. Mm-hmm. And these pioneers really paved the way. And to see their struggles both explains how we ended up here. And it's also very inspiring. Like We could also do the
7: same today yeah but I mean I, I was very conscious of the the feminist um, women's movement and mm-hmm. their their challenges um, their you know how how active and and mobilized and public and passionate they were um, but but I was not at all aware of the parallel movement which was the conservative women's movement so for me that was absolutely revelatory
4: yeah yeah I, I think we stand on the shoulder of all of these women mm-hmm. you know um and to be able to be women who work and can have families and and balance both of those worlds it was really inspiring to see how they were really forged in fire and how they kind of give birth to us all being able to do what we do yeah
7: yeah and also uh, for me too i think when when these amazing guys um ab- approached me about being involved is i t- t- Just had assumed that the Equal Rights Amendment was in the Constitution, Mm -hmm. and and I I really wanted to examine what was so frightening for people about the notion of uh, equality being put into the foundations of American culture, and that was a you know it's I think we are still having that conversation even today. It's so relevant.
0: Yeah, we often talk about social revolutions just from the point
2: of view of progress, but for a lot of people, they experience. Change as loss, mm-hmm. and so in delving yeah, into Phyllis Schlafly and the homemakers in her army, we really wanted to look at that the flip side mm-hmm. of progress.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's kind of funny that you know an Australian or you know a Brit or someone else in the Commonwealth world might just just assume, well, what are you what are you talking about? Of course, you know, b- women have this these rights enshrined. Why do you mean you even have to fight about it? Now, I think that's what drew her to the project is this how stunning it is that it, this fight even happened. Um, if you didn't live in the country and, and studied it, it's it's kind of strange to assume you had to fight for these things, and obviously still do.
1: And and not even succeed. Yeah, exactly. And not even win.
3: Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it hasn't even been passed. Now, the shadow of Trump, obviously, and, and the current iteration of the GOP looms over the series as, as Schlafly helps mobilize the coalition that has ruled the party since Reagan, more or less, Now, we watch her smite her moderate foes, and we can't help but roll our eyes, as the Elizabeth Banks character says with confidence at one point in the series, the Reagan revolution will never succeed. Now, she can't even fathom it. In the postscript, we learn that the last book Schlafly wrote before her death in 2016 was entitled The Conservative Case for Trump. So, you know, she had no problem reaping what she sowed.
1: So let's round out our discussion by revisiting the lies agreed upon. The first lie is that the United States was always at the forefront of social and sexual progress. The triumphalist narratives uh, in the uh, Iron Jawed Angels does very little to disrupt this narrative. But suffragette really gives us a clear understanding that all of these tactics were going on Before Alice Paul arrived back on American shores, that's where she learned it from. This progress, however, no matter where it is taking place, comes at great cost. But the imprisonments, the physical assaults, and even the deaths are presented as ultimately having meaning, achieving clear results that have very clear and total benefits iron angels in particular make suffrage seem really a pretty easy journey from point A to point B. Uh, Mrs. America, made in 2019, is a bit more cynical, as you might expect. But make no mistake, the U.S. is the center of the world here, and the world is watching the ERA intently, never mind that much of Western Europe and the rest of the Western world took such laws for granted, like Kate Blanchett indicated.
3: Yeah, right. Uh, and the second lie is about power and social movements. Now, we are conditioned to assume there's always unity of cause and broad representation, and any divisions within the movement can only harm it. Now, I think all three do a good job with this, even Iron-Jawed Angels, although they, they simplify the disagreements as, in that film as one of young versus old. Now, this 20-something upstart, Alice Paul, is going to bring the old biddies into the 20th century. Suffragette does not so much examine divisions as to depict the consequences of extreme action realistically. Now, the state is violent and pushes pankhurst's followers towards direct action. Mrs. America is mostly about divisions in the women's movement, in the conservative movement, and yes, in the country divisions that are far more visible and destructive in 2019 than in 1975, for example.
1: And it's an appropriate historical irony that Mrs. America, a product in part of the Me Too movement, in that it looks at the ongoing struggles that extend way beyond the simple right to vote, has a strong focus on Shirley Chisholm. Tarana Burke, a Black feminist activist, coined the phrase Me Too as a rallying cry around the issue of domestic abuse a decade before its appropriation by white women, many from Hollywood, in response to the crimes of Harvey Weinstein and and others.
3: And the third lie is is tied to the second. By focusing on the women's suffrage struggle in textbooks and in popular culture, uh, the struggle for equal rights for women went unacknowledged and unaddressed. A vote was just the beginning, of course, but first, second, and third-wave feminism hasn't had much pop culture treatment. Mrs. America is pretty remarkable for not only giving us a great deep dive into the ERA movement, you know, the fight for and against, Abzug, Friedan, Steinem, but it is pretty revelatory, as Blanchett says, uh, about the other side. You now, I didn't know much about Phyllis Schlafly and Stop ERA. Um, something like Mrs. America is long overdue.
1: Yeah. And I think that another thing that is long overdue, and I think makes me uh, feel fairly positively towards suffragette, although it, it has some issues, is that it is grounded firmly in the working class uh, suffragette movement. Because, you know, the, a lot of a lot of the suffrage movement on both sides of the Atlantic and in other countries was really driven by middle and upper class women who had a lot of free time on their hands because they didn't work outside the home. And so instead of sort of engaging in their philanthropic work, some women became politically active in, in advocating for suffrage But in suffragette, you get a really stark reminder of, first of all, what the issues were for working class women, that they were really practical things, that working conditions in predominantly female uh, um, work settings were not going to change unless there were people in parliament who were aware and cared about what those were. I mean, there was a, there's a reason why there were labor laws brought in having to do with working in, let's say, mines, but not having to do with working in places like laundries, which were incredibly dangerous. And so making the movie focused around working class women and therefore the much, much higher stakes that working class women who chose to be active in the suffrage movement, you know that I think is one of the real positive things about Suffragette uh, as a film.
3: Yeah, I've noticed that too. In Iron Jawed Angels, there's only one scene that gets to that idea of reaching across the you know the divide to working class women when they're trying to enlist um, with well, Vera Farmiga's character. They you now so the way that they get these women to buy into. Uh, any kind of political action is, you know, it's, you know, if you want a fire extinguisher in your dress factory, that's about to burn down, basically uh, you better find, you better vote for the person who's going to do that for you. And, and that's what finally got her to organize the women and, in, and um, in the factory that she was in is that, you know, a vote is a vote is a fire extinguisher. I, I think that's what it was. Like that's, that's what resonated, not the, you know, the broader philosophical, Movements of the educated women who can who can have the time to think about these things, but it's it's barely it's kind of one and done, and they get into the the other the other parts of, of Iron Jawed Angels. So, like I said, I think you know there is some value to Iron Jawed Angels, but one of the things that makes it so much a cultural artifact of 2004 is this need to have uh, McDreamy Patrick Dempsey have that character even in the film this this love interest uh, who was really serves no purpose, doesn't promote the narrative in any way. And is there just to be, to make Alice Paul somehow relatable to maybe like, you know, young women in 2004 because he's the ultimate guy. And I found it kind of, I mean, it's insulting. It's kind of dumb. It's silly. And it, it had no, it, it really had no place in the, that it shouldn't have had a place in the film at all. What do you think? Well, exactly. And of course, what it does is it also
1: wastes time. It takes time out of the film that could have been spent on other things, like it could have been spent on allowing the viewers to have a better understanding of who, for example, Inez Mulholland was, or other uh, suffragists and suffragettes. And instead, we get this gratuitous romance plot, which I think also was very much about trying to heterosexualize mm-hmm. Alice Paul because she had n- no sort of recorded, um, you know, intimate relations that sort of are known, but we uh, imagine, understand that she probably was not, uh, you know, heterosexually oriented. And, and then, even in the, you know, we have on top of that, even in her relationships with the women, the death of Ines Mulholland ends up resulting in Paul having this kind of, you know, mental breakdown driven by heartbreak and sorrow. But it doesn't dare to kind of even go further in that direction. To have you understand why Mulholland would be so important to her, so all of the the kind of focus on the personal takes away from the story instead of adding to it, whereas I feel like in suffragette, it's the opposite when you're with her family, when you're with her husband, her son, the disapproving neighbors, all of these things it's it furthers. The plot it furthers our understanding of just how high risk this decision was for her. Whereas in Iron Jawed Angels, it's exactly the opposite.
3: Yeah, I think nothing really explains why we focus on this podcast on when things were made uh, as much as we do about the content of the films as that. This example here, 2004 to 2015, to even just you know 2019, are just. Leaps in, in, in bounds of what, you know, they tell you everything about what mattered then. And Iron Jaw Angels is definitely a, 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 re, it remains in that early 20, 2000s because of that, you know, not only hetero, heteronormalizing Alice Paul, but the, the whole, um, just the trying to catch, catch a little bit of fame with, with McDreamy. And then you have far more sort of elevated uh the representations in in the two other films Suffragette 2015 and Mrs America only 4 years later in 2019 so if we're going to recommend films as we like to do at the at the end of our podcast um i for a long time as you know as a educator i would show clips from Iron Jawed Angels uh, just because I'm dealing with students who don't really have much background, and this at least gives you a straightforward kind of uh, discussion of and, and representation, I guess of of the suffrage movement in in America. <laughs> Let's be clear. And I think now I might move on to to Suffragette as some good clips to show show students. I think they both are good films for what they are, but Suffragette is superior. And for Mrs. America, it's just a great, well done. Uh, uh, much longer, of course, deep dive into where we are, I think currently by going by looking a little bit into the past in the uh that era of second wave feminism
1: yeah, and I think i, I mean i I agree with with uh what you're saying about uh Mrs. America just r- really uh being a a wonderful deep dive into something that I'm not sure would have been given a green light. A decade earlier. And that really is an indication of just what happens when you change who's sitting at the table that gets to make these decisions. There's a, a series that uh, ran for a single season called uh, Good Girls Revolt. I think that's what it was called that got canceled. And quite famously, this is last year, was Netflix was completely vilified for having cancelled this show that was not performing any worse than a thousand and one other series that were continued. But, you know, there were no women at the table making the decision about what, whether this show was going to go forward or not. And so sure enough, it didn't. And Mrs. America, in looking at the fact that it's got women producing it, women writing it, women directing it, says everything about how important it is to have women in the room.
3: This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah. And the theme music was written by Mike Patterson check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon.